You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. I grew up thinking and went to law school thinking either I go to a law firm and I make money or I go to a nonprofit and I do good. And and that was even as someone who was raised from a very young age to know that no matter what career path I take, I will be involved in my community and making my community get a better place. And that is my duty to, to give back. That was Kathleen Kelly Janus a social entrepreneur, author, and lecturer at Stanford University and the author of Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. She joins me today to discuss how nonprofit organizations can maximize their impact by adopting some of the same strategies that modern for-profit organizations are using. We also touch in on how the nonprofit sector unintentionally reinforces the same inequities they're attempting to solve. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved SaneBox for years, and I think you will too. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining me today. I am super excited to talk to you. Um, I've recently um, jumped feet first into the deep end of the nonprofit world. Um, and by recently, I mean over the last two or three years, but it still feels recent. Um, and so learned a lot in that, min- that amount of time and super um, pumped that you've you know, written the book to help more nonprofit folks be successful. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Charlie. All right. So let's jump into your origin story and see how you got started with this work. So what led you to this work and, and um, what have you learned along the way? Well, uh, writing Social Startup Success has really been a labor of love for me that started with growing up in a small town in California, where I'm from, Napa, where, you know, my parents taught us from a very young age to give back to our community. So we spent our weekends volunteering at the homeless shelter or at the local hospital. Um, But the conversations that are dinner table didn't just revolve around the people in our community that didn't have enough to eat. 
Um, they also went farther to talk about the organizations and whether the organizations that were serving those really vulnerable populations had the resources that they needed to survive and thrive. And so from a very young age, I was always aware of organizations um, that struggled, nonprofits, and 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 how we could support them better. And and I learned this lesson the hard way when I co-founded my own small nonprofit organization. It was um, an organization called Spark, which engages young professionals in gender equality philanthropy. And it was amazing. We had a ton of buzz. We had lines around the block for our events. And just like two-thirds of the nonprofits in the United States, despite all this, we hit this wall at $500,000 in revenue. And we couldn't get the capital that we needed to grow. And so I became really curious. Who are the organizations that are scaling past this wall? And what were they doing that we weren't doing at Spark? And so uh, Social Startup Success is essentially you know, five years of researching the top performing organizations in the country. I've surveyed hundreds of organizations. I traveled the country and met with 100 founders, their staff and their beneficiaries and their funders, all to get to the bottom of this question. Why is it that some organizations succeed in scale and others don't? And the book is a culmination of all of that research and highlights five basic strategies that I came up with that all of these organizations that tended to scale more quickly implemented to get to that phase. Great. So I'm going to ask the same question I would ask a, a, a um, venture-based entrepreneur or more Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur. Why scale? Well, scale can mean different things to different people. So in Social Startup Success, I talk about organizations scaling from 500000 to $2 million. So really, I talk about scale in kind of the smallest sense of the word. It's really more about getting to a level of sustainability. And the problem in our country and around the world is that we have these organizations that are solving some of the world's most pressing social problems that are operating on a shoestring and really running on this treadmill, constantly trying to fundraise to, to make ends meet and make payroll at the end of the month. And so when I talk about scale, I'm talking about how do we make these organizations sustainable so that they're not constantly struggling to survive, so that they can focus on the impact that they're trying to have as opposed to simply being on this fundraising treadmill. Well, that's fantastic because, I mean, whether we're talking about business or nonprofit, there is this tension between scaling and sustainability. Um, because yeah. sometimes the, the strategies that you use will scale will keep you from forever being sustainable, depending upon yep. what your definition is there. And then otherwise, you know, um, some versions of sustainability will actually prevent you from being able to scale, right? Mm -hmm. Depending upon what we mean with those words, right? And so right. Um, it's always one of those things is what's your why here, who you're trying to serve? Do you have a solution that, that has a broader audience that you just can't reach, so on and so forth? Absolutely. And, and the reality is that, you know, I talk about the two-thirds of nonprofits in the United States that are $500,000 and below, many of those organizations should stay small. Many of those organizations are small mom and pop nonprofits, so to speak, and working in communities and playing a very important role as a community-based organization. Um, and, and so, you know, even those organizations can learn how to operate more effectively, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily have to scale. 
So you've already mentioned the 500K sort of speed bump. Um, are there any other speed bumps that people in the nonprofit world who might be on boards or who might be thinking about starting need to know about and just know that it's a thing um, that they're, they're going to have to overcome? Well, I think that there's a lot of speed bumps. Uh, and the five strategies that I talk about in the book are the ones where organizations, I think, get most tripped up over. So innovation, how do you become better at testing and failing um, and, and, and learning from those failures so that you can be more successful? Measuring impact, 75% of nonprofits say that they measure impact, but only 6% of them really believe that they're using their data effectively. So doing that well is really, really hard and yet really, really critical to getting funding to succeed and to be effective. Uh, third, funding experimentation and, and fundraising is a really, really big speed bump for a lot of organizations um, and, and probably the biggest, the number one challenge that the organizations I surveyed faced, 81% of them said it was access to capital. And so this is really something that organizations need to get better at if they want to grow, because we all know you need capital mm -hmm. to scale. Uh, fun, leading collaboratively and thinking about how to get the most out of your teams, not only your senior leadership and your, your broader team, but also your board of directors and having a really strong board a partnership. And then finally, storytelling and, and thinking about how to tell your story better involves a lot of practice. And I think organizations oftentimes don't prioritize that practice. And as a result, uh, don't tell their story well. And, and storytelling is really how you build a movement. And so the best organizations figure that out and they prioritize that practice at every single level of the organization, whether it's their staff, their leadership, or, or even their boards. I'm going to approach this question from a different place, right? Um, because we know sort of in the business world, um, especially around revenue and team size, that, that we'll reach these speed bumps. For instance, um, there might be that, like we know about it in the small business world, there's a 300K sort of speed bump. Like that's when you have to start doing things differently. You have to start scaling in different ways. And then there might be a two mil speed bump. There's a 10 mil speed bump. Um, just where the organization has to take on a different nature to grow and, and scale past that point. Um, have you seen any anything like that in the nonprofit world that's either around, um, you know, their fundraising capabilities or the size of their team? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely fundraising speed bumps along the way. I mean, it, there is the $500,000 speed bump. There is the analogous, I think, two to four two to $3 million speed bump. There's the $5 million speed bump. So I think, I think it's true that there's a lot of similarity in the nonprofit sector as well. Um, and different organizations are going to have to treat those, those, those valleys differently, um, depending on their scale. So for example, um, in the early stages, the funding speed bump is all about testing. How do you test out all of the different possible revenue streams, whether it's earned income, government income, uh, third-party beneficiaries, to figure out what is going to be the right revenue for you? And then around 3 to $5 million in revenue, it all becomes about perfecting that strategy uh, for scale. 
it's not about testing anymore. It's about, it's about replication. And so being aware of what those different, uh, strategies are is critical in order to be effective at every single stage. Absolutely. I mean, I think a common pattern might be that especially earlier stage, um, social startups and nonprofits might be focusing on just either fundraising, um, scenarios or things that are just not going to get them the revenue that they need to when, for instance, maybe they need to be focusing on telling a better story, right? Mm -hmm. At the beginning and doing uh, more grassroots fundraising rather than chasing foundations and chasing, you know, major donors, um, that are going to give them seven figures like that, that might not happen. They need to get their ground game. So it's just different ways of thinking about that. And I want to put that out because a lot of times when we're looking at strategies, whether we're talking about nonprofits or whether we're talking about for-profit businesses, we, um, unfortunately choose the wrong strategy for our scale and stage of business. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to, um, a lot of wasted time, a lot of wasted money, um, a lot of wasted heart when we start really talking about the nonprofit space too, because it's really challenging to know you're doing great work and not be able to do it more because just the, the, the engines don't have enough fuel to keep them going. That's really what it's all about. And it's, it's the reason why I wrote social startup success. There's a, a story I tell about a, a, a early stage organization called at the crossroads founded by Rob Gittin in San Francisco. And Rob was a Stanford student who like to sleep past noon, like many of my students. And so he chose this class called uh, Homelessness in America because it met his criteria. It met at 2 p.m. <laughs> um, and, and he started volunteering with homeless youth and he fell in love and he wanted to continue to work with these youth when he graduated. And so he started the organization really as a self-employment plan. <laughs> so he, 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 was able to do the work. He found it at the crossroads, got some seed money and was doing the outreach literally around the clock from 7 PM to 7 AM every single night, walking the streets of the Tenderloin in San Francisco and quickly realized that he was not going to make a dent in the problem alone, that there were so many more kids that needed his assistance than he was ever going to be able to provide. And if he really wanted to grow the organization um, and the impact that he was going to need to build a bigger system And the problem is that he was 22. He had never been hired before, let alone hired anyone or fired anyone himself. He didn't have access to high net worth donors to be able to raise the money that he needed. And so he basically needed, you know, you talk about what strategies he needed. He needed every strategy. (laughs) He needed, he needed all of them. And and 20 years later, Rob has scaled at the crossroads. It's a $2 million organization in San Francisco that is serving hundreds of, of homeless youth on the streets of San Francisco every year and doing phenomenal work. But he learned it all on the job. And he, it took him 20 years to get there. And I just don't think we have 20 years to lose when we're talking about some of these problems like increasing inequality and racial injustice issues and um, or the opioid epidemic. We need to solve these problems now. And so I'm really curious and, and hopeful that through social startup success and through capacity building that we can give people the tools and the strategies they need to be more efficient as they grow their organizations. Precisely. And and to really put it in context, when we look at some of these major social issues that nonprofits serve, um, we can say sort of 20 years and that has a has a value to it. But we also need to think that that's an entire generation of people. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think of cyclical patterns that happen, say, around homelessness or around poverty, around education, around equity and things like that, that's another generation that has, you know, has to fight the same fight that we've been fighting all over again and hasn't had that progress. And so that's what, you know, I, I really, it, when we start talking about nonprofit space, it's, um, it's, I, I think, you know, and, and we're talking to our audience who are a mix of creatives and entrepreneurs and things like that, which tend to focus on, I think, adult customers and adults without thinking about in the nonprofit space, you're actually talking about most of the work that you're doing is trying to improve the next generation. So you have to have this long, it's this weird thing where you have to have this longer view <laughs> At yeah. the same time that you have to take action now, because if you keep waiting, that's another cohort of kids or that's another, you know, um, if it's, you know, kids and access to pre-K, which is one of the things that I'm involved in. Like you mess around for two years, that's two cohorts of students that yep. 12 years from now, you're going to see their outcomes like play out differently. Right. Well, and we see it. I'm, I'm reading now the, the book of one of my dear friends, Nadine Burkaris, who just wrote a book called The Deepest Well, which talks about childhood toxic stress and how that becomes um, embedded within the cellular makeup of our DNA. You know, I mean, it is it literally becomes part of our DNA these when when we experience adverse childhood experiences. And so if you look at entire communities that have suffered um, we're embedding these problems for generations. And, and so they, they have to be addressed now. And so how can we do that more effectively and more efficiently? Okay, so part of what your um, thesis is, is that like many nonprofits are operating in an old fashioned way, and, and they can modernize in a new way, so or modernize to maximize their impact. Um, so there's really two questions. Why are they operating in the old fashioned way? Um, and then there's how can they modernize? Well, I see this all the time with nonprofits where I grew up in, in the small community of Napa. They, they have been doing really important work in the community for years and years and years. And, um, and, and you know, that they become, I think, accustomed to the work that they're doing and, and don't really think about how to look at things in a fresh way. Um, and so the reality is that over the past couple of decades, we've, we've seen enormous waves in the sector um, in terms of doing a better job of measuring impact and using all this new data um, and new data systems that te technology has given us. There are blurring of the lines like we've never seen before. I see my students at Stanford who no longer look at things in terms of nonprofit or for-profit or government, that all of these are tools in their toolkits to leverage social change. And if they want to make a difference, they have to be fluent in all of these different areas. And so, um, and so I think that's a really exciting opportunity for nonprofits, but certainly not the way that, that they've operated in the past. And donors have changed. Donors no longer want to just write a checkbook and be done, write a check within their checkbook and, and be done. They, they want to, they want to support nonprofits. They want to roll up their sleeves. They want to give their skills and, um, and be useful in more ways than just with cash donations. So nonprofits have to harness that energy and to think about how they can leverage donors uh, whether it's for their legal skills or whether it's for their fundraising skills or whether it's getting them deep 
deeper involved in the cause is by putting them on the front lines and giving them proximity to the beneficiaries that you're serving. And so nonprofits are, who are not modernizing are really missing out on, I think, a phenomenal opportunity to magnify the impact of their work. So we know in the business world that you adapt or die, right? Um, just And business is getting faster and smarter and harder and things like that. Is that same trend happening in nonprofit space as well? It is. The, the problem is that um, market forces don't exist in the same way in the nonprofit sector. So we also know a lot of organizations that should die and <laughs> don't, right? There, um, there are a lot of um, factors that keep nonprofits afloat that maybe aren't having the impact that, that they should have. And so I think we all need to challenge ourselves to be better so that we can recognize when we are having an impact as well as when we're not having an impact and, and think about course correction and changing, changing gears. Uh, and the reason, uh, I think that doesn't happen more in the nonprofit sector is that there's a real lack of willingness to be transparent and to talk about failure and to be honest about failure. And, and the reason is because funders don't require it. And funders, um, in fact, will be less inclined to fund you if you talk about your failure. And so nonprofits have no incentive to be really honest about what's working and what's not. So I think if we want to create better systems to, um, to be more effective, I think we have to be honest about what's working as well as what's not. Yeah, I think that's one of the key differences. I mean, there are a lot of key differences, but one of the things that I've seen, um, especially over the last 10 years, is a increasing demand for um, transparency on impact from donors. Like, we want to know where our money is going these days, right? We just, yeah. you know, either don't write a check and don't pay attention to where it's going. It's like, no, what? wait a second, why is... 35% of my dollar going for this other stuff here, right? As opposed to going to, to support the, the communities or to support the cause. And so um, I think that's where it gets tricky, right? Is because if you're super transparent about things, you um, also need to be transparent about that fund, about the fund rate or about the failures, right? Yeah, absolutely. And donors have to be willing to have those conversations and, and to not punish if, nonprofits are honest and don't necessarily give them the answer that they want to hear because that's going to, that's not going to make them very honest in the future if they, if they are honest and then they don't get funded as a result. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's the catch 22 here is like, you, you got to be transparent, but I think it's, maybe you can talk more about this. I think there's also this newer idea from nonprofits. I don't know how new it is, right? We have this tendency of, of making history start whenever we start paying attention. So that's why things can seem new when you do research. But um, I think nonprofits are starting to do a better job of cultivating the type of donors that are best fits for them, rather than taking any dollar that, that they might get thrown their way, in which case you might develop donors that are failure tolerant, um, or failure sort of celebratory, right? Um, yeah as opposed to the much more conservative ones that are like, well, you only really get one chance to use my dollar well. It does. I mean, it becomes, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and, you know, one of the funders that I talk about in, in the book is Kari Tuna um, and Dustin Moskovitz who run the Open Philanthropy Project. He's the co-founder of Facebook. And they will literally fund projects that, that there's one project, GiveWell, that talks, they have a whole failures tab on their website. 
I mean, they, they talk, I mean, almost like to the level of discomfort. It's so uncomfortable to read how honest they are on this failures page um, about things that they've said and shouldn't have, or, um, you know, ways who people they've hired that they shouldn't have. Um, and, 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 and Kari Tuna will say that that actually attracted her to the organization that because they were so honest, because they were self-aware, it led her to believe that they were going to be much more effective in their work. And so I think that is the approach that donors need to take if they want to see people be more honest and transparent. Well, we've been spending a lot of time talking about, um, for lack of better words, nonprofit organizational dynamics, right? Um, which may or may not be interesting to a lot of folks. But um, I think, you know, almost everyone has a cause that they want to back or they have something that they care about in the community that um, they want to do more on. So what are some, um, you know, what can the average person do to get involved in social causes that they care about? It's a great question. We are living in a philanthropic renaissance. Everybody can make a difference in some way or another. Um, And there are channels for people to make a difference like never before. Giving back is no longer relegated to after 5 p.m. when you leave the office. There are many companies that are integrating their social change work and volunteer work into their um, into their everyday work. So Salesforce, for example, has the pledge 1% where they pledge 1% of their dollars, 1% of their time, 1% of their resources to nonprofit causes. And that means their employees get to go on, um, you know, volunteer service trips. And, and so getting your company involved in social causes and, uh, can be one very important way to get involved. We also know that the research shows that millennials want to give back not only their, um, money, but their time and their, their skills. And so looking at what skills you have to offer personally, whether you're an accountant and, and can offer those very critical skills to an organization, or whether you are a lawyer and want to give pro bono time in that way, or whether you're a chef and want to you know make meals for an organization. Everybody has something professionally that they can give. Um, and so thinking introspectively about what that might be is a great way to start. You also want to think about what you're passionate about. What, what do you care about and, um, and, and, and why? And, and find organizations that are doing things that keep you up at night. Everybody's going to have a different answer to that question. And then finally, I'd say think about what organizations are going to be most effective. And that's where reading a book like Social Startup Success can be really helpful to the average person who wants to give back as a donor to be a better donor or to figure out what organization to give their time to, um, to really understand what organizations need to be doing to be effective and to analyze organizations based on that. So something I'll add in here, and I know this is, it won't work for everyone, but something that we can see is that a lot of people will be involved in a lot of different nonprofits and sort of be at the shallow level, like, and and that's great, but something that I would encourage people, especially if you're crunched for time and attention, you got a lot of busy things to do is, is do some of the hard work of figuring out what really, really matters to you and join fewer organizations that are really laser pointed for that thing, rather than stretching yourself way too thin. Um, now I think it benefits you as the person who has limited resources, but I think it might also benefit that organization to have someone that's truly, truly in 
and doing the work as opposed to people who, um, from the organization's perspective, like you kind of have to chase them down and there's not a real good relationship there. So focus on fewer and I think you can make a bigger difference. I agree. I think that generally people don't appreciate the fact that most people give, take more time than they give. In other words, it takes a lot of resources for a nonprofit to get you involved in a volunteer opportunity because for even if you do step up for every one of you, there's going to be 10 people that flake. And so it's a real investment of an organization to get you involved. And the more time that you can give and the more, uh, the more effective you'll ultimately be. Yeah, that's been a huge challenge because, as you mentioned, a um, huge challenge in some of the nonprofits that I'm involved with because, as you mentioned, many people um, are wanting to be involved and they're wanting to give work and labor and energy and, and all that sort of whatnot to it. Um, and at a certain stage of scale and sustainability, you might not have the volunteer coordinator or you might not have the engagement coordinator whose full time it is just to sort of herd the cats that, that want to give give their claws to the cause, right? Um, and so that's just, it, it's one of those things that I'll be curious to see how we figure that out going forward, because as there are more people who are wanting to provide service and work, we're going to need more volunteer coordinators and so on and so forth. But that increases the overhead of the nonprofit, um, when the non, so it just creates this interesting dynamic where we don't have product market fit between what the market wants to give and what we're able to provide. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So um, you know, one thing that I'm super interested to talk to you about, and I'm glad you put it on the table beforehand, is who isn't getting funded and who is not involved in the nonprofit sector that should be getting funded and should be getting involved, and why aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this is really what keeps me up at night is is who did I not write about? And and one of the things that I realized in writing this book is that so many of the stories started the same way. So-and-so graduated from Stanford and started her organization or so-and-so graduated from Harvard and started his. And, um, you know, I love my Stanford students. I think they have an incredible energy and, and will do amazing work changing the world. I don't think all of them should be starting organizations. And I think that oftentimes we're funding people to start organizations out of Ivy League schools or privileged backgrounds at the expense of community-based leaders who are very connected to the communities that they're serving and arguably in a much better position to solve these really pressing social problems, know what their communities need, but don't have the language uh, to talk about their work in forms of innovation or a business plan or the impact that they uh, have achieved, that, that don't have access to networks of people who can write them big checks, that don't have the privilege of saying, I'm going to just take six months off and test out this idea and <laughs> forgo a salary. I mean, I certainly didn't have that, that luxury. I mean, uh, you know, very few people do. And yet the people who do start organizations are the ones that can afford to take that risk. And so, again, getting back to how can we be more effective as a sector, I wonder if um, we could set up philanthropic systems for for giving out capital in ways that don't just reward who has the best networks or who has um, – who has have, have the best business plans, but actually look at who is making the most impact on a much more objective level. And I think this also 
there are so many layers to bias. I think this also um, really gets that implicit racial and gender bias as well. We know that organizations that are founded by white founders raise twice as much capital five years out as their um, counterparts of color. The same dynamics exist between women founders and men founders. And so I think we need to be honest about how racial bias comes into play, especially when 85% of trustees of foundations are white, 75% of foundation staff are white. And, you know, when funding decisions happen on a very gut level, that is code for bias. That's that's when bias happens. Um, and so I think the whole sector needs to really be um, reflective on how we can do better. Yeah. And we, again, going back to the generational <laughs> challenge of things, it's also looking at it from, um, you know, a, an age base, right? When we look at boards and we look at um, high value donors, when we look at all this kind of whatnot, they tend to have a certain age demographic, right? That um, may still be um, reeling off of some of the changes that happened in the 60s. And we're trying to solve problems of, you know, the 2020s. And we sort of got this weird sort of thing where it's like the people at the table and the people funding the table are not representative of the people who need to be at the table and who yeah. need the work. And so, you know, I don't have any real answers here. It's it's something that I've seen as well. I'm like, mm, this is, you know, um, yeah. yeah, this this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. I'm adventurous in a lot of different ways. But, you know, as a person of color, I don't like every time I go to a nonprofit sort of thing, I'm you know, like either one of a few, right? And it's just this weird sort of thing where it's, it's not um, – it's, it doesn't make it easy for me to turn to people my age and people in the communities from I'm from and say, hey, we should be a part of this because when you stand up at the table, you're always the outsider and there's always sort of this weird hierarchy going there. So um, well, I think, go ahead. Well, I think there's, I think you're right. I think that there's got to be a diversity of decision-making, um, but our organizations also have to be reflective of the communities that they're serving or they're not going to be effective. Um, and I think that is is a really critical point that we need to examine. <laughs> well, I think there's two levels of effective, right? I think there's operationally effective, like they're not going to get their job done. But I think there's, um, we might want to say culturally effective at changing the norms and folkways yeah. um, and mores of the society. And if we're unfortunately just um, um, keeping a cycle going over and over again, even though we don't mean to. And that's the problem, right? It's not that people yeah. on the boards are meaning for this to happen, but it's happening nonetheless. Well, yeah. And I think that, I, I, I think that, that philanthropic systems don't understand the extent to which they are reinforcing the very problems that they're trying to solve. And I think that's where there needs to be more awareness. Yeah. So what I would say here, again, not the expert on this one, um, but if your organization or if you're part of an organization that doesn't have a diversity lens, get one, right? Figure yeah. out how to start asking some of these questions around diversity and equity and how you bake that into the organization and not just from who your beneficiaries are, but, you know, from the board down and from the community and from the staff, like, you know, get with it because otherwise we're just going to be reinforcing the same situations over and over again. Agreed. <laughs> um, now, you also, you know, we've talked about people getting involved. 
um, there's getting involved and then there's maybe becoming an activist, right? And so to you, is there a difference and is being an activist an option that everyone can do? Or is it just for a smaller group of people who have the time, energy, and money to be able to do it? I think it depends on how you define activism. I mean, I grew up thinking and went to law school thinking either I go to a law firm and I make money or I go to a nonprofit and I do good. And, and that was even as someone who was raised from a very young age to know that no matter what career path I take, I will be involved in my community and making my community get a better place. And that is my duty to, to give back. So if I'm thinking that way, like imagine other people, I learned in starting spark as a young lawyer that we all have something to give in this world and that we all have the capacity to be activists for causes that we care about. And I think by shying away from that word, uh, I think that we're doing our whole society a disservice. And I think that's ultimately, it's really exciting because we need all hands on deck to solve these social problems that we're facing and to make uh, the world a better place. And so if we can all think about how we can do our part in being activists, we're going to, we're going to solve these problems. I think it's interesting because, um, you know, we've seen some different trends since the sixties and seventies, but one of the trends we've seen is that um, more and more of the social problems at Ellis has been sort of resigned to the government to fix. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Now that's a broad statement we could dive in, but um, you know, what I want to encourage people who are thinking about becoming an activist, right. That has a certain tone and a certain sort of way that it feels. What I would say on this one is think about how you can get involved in your community to solve your community's problems. That's really yeah. all we're saying. Like you don't necessarily have to be at all the rallies and all the marches. And that's a great thing to do if that's what fires you up. But like, it's really how can you get involved in your community and not necessarily leave that decision up to the government or leave it up to other people to figure out because you might not like what you get. Well, and protesting is one form of activism, right? Like there are a lot of ways to make a difference that don't involve going out on the streets. And I think if we were limited to that, we wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we always want to think, I think it's useful to think in terms of um, the things that you do in response to things that you don't like and the things that you do to create better futures. And they may not be the same thing. So you might decide that spending 10 hours a month working with a, an organization that really works for you is a, is the way that you want to spend your time and be an activist. Um, that's fantastic. You might also decide that being involved in the, in the marches and the rallies and things like that is the way that you want to be an activist. That's fantastic mm -hmm. too, right? The yes. different ways we can show up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So from your five years of research, um, what were some of the most surprising things that you found out that you really weren't expecting, um, to see there? I would say the most surprising thing for me was uh, I kept waiting as I did these hundred interviews for someone to say, you know, someone just has to have charisma or a real passion or a great idea. And those things are all very important, but no one said that. And I, I think that's really hopeful and inspiring because I think we can all learn how to do our work better. And that really it comes down to 
these fundamental strategies that all organizations have to implement in order to be more effective. Um, I think it's also the flip side of it is that passion and charisma can only get you so far and can actually, I think, be a hindrance to a great organization and and Jim Collins talks about this in in good to great you know he talks about how it's not you know the sexy you know charismatic CEOs that get ahead it's the kind of you know the pluggers that really just get get in there and 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 manage and you know do all the 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 work that that really are the most effective and and the same is holds true in the nonprofit sector as well yeah i mean what we see across both is that when you look at passionate, charismatic leaders, you oftentimes will get a cult of personality, yep. right? That that's what making the organization tick. And as long as that person's in the seat, that's great. Unless there are too many people who, unless there are a lot of people who don't get along with that personality, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you start switching to whether you use, you know, Jim Collins level five leaders or more um, leaders that think about the system, that think about the organization and thinking about it as an engine for sort of change as opposed to a person, mm-hmm. a person of change, then you start to see businesses and nonprofits that can scale and that can grow um, and that that nonprofit ED can leave because, you know, it wasn't just them in the Fred Flintstone, you know, thing where right. like their feet were the only thing that was powering the the velocity of the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, no one wants to work for an organization leader that is taking all the credit and you know doing not doing any of the work. And and that's a big section of my book, Social Startup Success, is how do organizations develop a culture of collective leadership so that they can be more effective collectively. So what are you learning most now? Now, I mean, now, so I'm four weeks out on the book trail. And, uh, you know, what's so interesting to me is to see what resonates for people and, and what what bubbles up for people. I've been in this book process for five years. And so I have some ideas of things that are interesting to me. Um, And I think, I think this issue of bias is one that really puts people on the edge of their chairs. I I, I think that people don't realize how biased the, the sector is and how, how layers of bias um, play out in our society. And I think this is something that we're just scratching the surface on. And I'm really excited to help push that conversation forward. That's fantastic. So the second book going to be about that? Not talking (laughs) about a second book yet. I've had three babies since I started writing this book. And people keep asking me that. And I say, that's like asking a woman on a delivery table. (laughs) When she's having her next baby, it's just not fair. <laughs> um, as someone working on the book, I totally get it. And so um, <laughs> I really appreciate that. So as today's guest, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? I would challenge everybody to get involved in a cause that you care about. It doesn't matter what the cause is. If you get involved in something, you can have an impact in your community and we can all work together to make this world a better place. And I truly believe that we all have the power to do that. That's fantastic. Thank Kathleen. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a blast. Thanks, Charlie. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Kathleen. 
Go out and get involved in a cause that you care about. No matter where you are in the United States and most most places in the world, there is some organization that is set up trying to tackle that problem. And remember what we said about being an activist. It's simply getting involved to solve your community's um, problems and challenges so that you make a better future for those that follow. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 